0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host for today's episode. I'm going to be joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being.
1: Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? You know what? I'll I'll be completely honest with with you and the listeners. This is why I stopped asking. But I'm go not. Ahead. I'm not doing my best today. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I got both our COVID booster and our flu shot for the year. The thinking behind that was uh, historically they've had very different effects on me. So uh, COVID booster makes me feel kind of achy, sluggish, tired, and flu shots. I don't think this is a common thing, but for whatever reason, uh, flu shots just make me feel extremely wired um, as, as if they're like a super powerful stimulant, I guess. Like just just limitless amounts of nervous energy um which i guess is just like my immune system just kind of like picking up my my sympathetic nervous system to be like ah like it's it's time to fight something whatever so very different uh historical uh effects of those two vaccines so i was thinking like ooh, well if i just knock them out on the same day maybe it'll just like more or less cancel each other out you know um Take like an upper and a downer. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, instead, it turns out it, it turned out to be the worst of both worlds. Um, very sluggish, very achy. Felt like I got hit by a truck, but then also like couldn't sleep. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I got run over by a truck today, and I am not at my best. Uh, but I will try to pull things together and make for at least a tolerable episode for for both you and the audience.
0: Over, under of comments we get about COVID and vaccines.
1: Uh, well. Where are we setting the betting line? It's going to be a lower number than it was initially going to be. Um, I had just, just a lot of jokes and bits planned about that. But as I understand it, uh, certain podcast platforms are very sensitive about that kind of stuff and don't do a good job of of uh telling apart sarcastic jokes from sincerely held beliefs so uh yeah yeah so i i think i don't know i i think we'll probably get i i'd put the over under at like 12 maybe yeah i actually i think i will take the under okay. if we're saying discreet comments and not including follow-ups i'll take the under on that do you read the youtube comments i don't okay <laughs> uh well in, in this case i am i'm like the house i'm like the vegas casino that has access to maybe a little bit more inside information than all of the betters do and uh we we will see all right yeah time will tell um <laughs> how how are uh how are you doing today i'm good
0: good yeah no complaints um let, let's get into it here uh, let's do it if you like the show um i have no way of knowing because i don't read the youtube comments <laughs> Uh, but if you like it, uh, there are ways that you could support it. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to get the podcast. Uh, as I mentioned last week, you could sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, we send out weekly emails with really useful research updates. Uh, and to find out more about that or sign up for free, you can go to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. If you're looking for a one-on-one coach who works in a virtual capacity looking for some online coaching. We do offer that. We have a very talented and experienced team of coaches. You can learn more about that at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. Uh, If you are looking for a little discount on your supplements, or I should probably say a massive discount on your supplements, go to bulksupplements.com. You can use our code SBSPOD, S-B-S-P-O-D, that will get you a 5% discount off your entire order. Uh, and of course, if you want to support us further, you could check out the Mass Research Review, which we publish every single month, the first of the month, uh, reviewing all the newest research in exercise and nutrition uh, and some miscellaneous topics. I've been doing a little stuff on psychology and coaching and things like that. Uh, and you could also check out Macro factor That's the, uh, the diet app that we co-developed with a very talented team of developers. Uh, and you, we do have a free trial, so you can, uh, you know, give it a shot, take it for a spin and see if you like it before you commit financially. Uh, now, before we get into our prepared segments, a little bit of chatter here. Uh, on the show in the past, we've talked a little bit about academic publishing or scientific publishing. Um, I would say in some cases, we've been critical of the, the process. And there's a new kind of publication model. I, it seems new to me. I, I haven't seen any like major high profile journals try this yet, uh, but it, it was just announced like a day or two ago. And so my Twitter, which is carefully cultivated, you know, everybody's talking about it in my Twitter timeline. So a journal called eLife is really changing the way they do it. So normally, uh, you know, you'll submit a paper to a journal. And the editor will take a look at it. And if the editor is like, hey, this is just crap, they'll just send it back and say like, hey, I'm not going to send that out to to peer reviewers. Or if they simply decide, you know what, I think this is good work, but it just doesn't really make sense in our journal. It's just way too off topic for what we focus on. So great work, but you might want to take it elsewhere. Again, it'll just go straight back to the author. The editor makes the first choice of saying, okay, this is good enough and it's a decent fit for our journal. I'm gonna seek out peer reviewers who are going to critique it, weigh in, and then ultimately the peer reviewers give a recommendation to the editor. Something that's kind of interesting is theoretically, there's nothing stopping an editor if both if he if the editor, if he or she sends it out to multiple reviewers and all the reviewers say, This sucks. This is the dumbest thing I've ever read. It's fabricated, fraudulent. This is just absolutely terrible work in every possible way. Technically, the editor still makes the call mm-hmm. and can just say, like, I, I liked it. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, the editor uh, takes the recommendations from the reviewers very seriously. And in most cases, if the reviewers can't really come to a consensus, you know, that, then, you know, the, the editor tries to reach a consensus and ultimately uh make a judgment that is compatible with the reviews. And the the editor decides either we're going to accept this paper and publish it or reject it, hand it back to the author and say, do whatever you want with it. So this new model, uh, the spin that they're taking here is the editor is still going to do that first line of kind of editorial judgment Mm -hmm. where they say, okay, yeah, this looks pretty good, good enough for a review. And I think it kind of works for our journal once they decide to send it to reviewers, eLife is now committed to publishing that paper. But they are not making any decisions about accepting or rejecting the paper. So basically, what they're going to do is publish the paper with a lot of transparency about what the reviewers thought about it. So theoretically, you could th- they could be hosting a paper that is technically published on their site. That is just absolutely dreadful. And all the reviews are quite negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, what they're doing is they're turning it away from a dichotomous decision of this is excellent, perfect science or not excellent, perfect science. And they're making it more of a type of thing where it's like, here's an article. Here's what some reviewers think. And it's a little bit more fluid, a little bit more. Uh, there's more gradation there in terms of each individual uh, research or, or whoever's reading it kind of making an assessment of all right, how good was this and and what do some uh, content experts think about it? So uh, it, it's really an interesting idea and I think it's really cool and I'm I'm pretty on board. With that. I don't I don't I don't think it's like a, a silver bullet. I don't think it's the perfect thing that's going to revolutionize publishing for the better for the better. but I'm generally interested in breaking up the inertia in the academic publishing. Infrastructure and process. I'm interested in more uh, avenues to publication that are dramatically different from the status quo. Because I think if we try a few different iterations, at the very least, we'll get out of this really rigid kind of single approach to publishing. So I think it's really cool. And one of the things that um, I've seen a lot of good takes about this on the internet and a lot of bad takes about it, in my opinion. One of the things that's really interesting is there seems to be a misconception about why editors offloaded a lot of the decision-making to reviewers in the first place. There there seems to be a misunderstanding of the historical evolution of that process. So I I saw somebody posted, um, I'm going to link to this in the show notes, but it was kind of a historical look at how this came to be. And much to my surprise, I I genuinely didn't know this. Um, For a long time there, up until like the 60s and 70s, it pretty much was just that the editors called the shots. And a lot of the um, reviewing process was handled in house by the journal. Mm -hmm. They weren't just like fishing it around and like emailing people, like, hey, I need to go, you know, track down two or three folks to review this. Where's my list of reviewers? It was very much the journal uh made editorial decisions in-house and didn't rely on external peer reviews um if they did it was not as commonplace as it is today um but uh, according to the uh the thing i'm linking in the show notes here it it says that uh basically um the journals just said like hey this is kind of a lot (laughs) like we're just kind of struggling to keep up with this um we need to lighten our workload on the editorial side, and doing all of this ourselves is very cumbersome. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, it, they also <laughs> said that you know this is not what they call pleasant or satisfying work. They're like, we just don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um. And, and so the, the the bad take that I've been seeing is this assumption that the the way the peer review process currently works was established because it safeguards quality and was made for you know the, the decision-making process was just driven by we need to make sure that we have the most rigorous processes in place, and this ensures the highest degree of rigor. And if we by, pre, bypass this typical process, there's no way that we could possibly safeguard the uh, the
1: quality of the you know the peer-reviewed literature or the scientific literature. And it's and, and I mean one thing I'll note is there's an assumption that I think most people very reasonably make, which is. You know, since this is about scientific publishing, after all, if the if the publication model changes and the mechanism by which papers are accepted or rejected from the journals changes, I think it's a perfectly reasonable assumption to just assume that some scientists did some science and made sure that the new system worked better than the old system. Um, but that simply didn't happen. They they just moved to a a peer review focused system uh for a, a variety of other reasons right and there was also um a, a former editor-in-chief was it the british journal of medicine yeah it was bmj i yeah. think the, the title of the paper was peer review a flawed process at the heart of science and journals i i can find it real quick
0: yeah but but there was basically uh, <laughs> it sounds kind of silly when you put it this way but the peer-reviewed literature suggests that peer review is pretty not great uh it it does not live up to the kind of agreed upon expectations in terms of quality and rigor uh and yeah like peer-reviewed research has been carried out to see how good is peer review and it doesn't really provide the level of uh quality control that a lot of people are indicating in this conversation yeah uh and by the way just to give credit where credit's due the the thing i linked in the show notes that was talking about the historical context of this process it was called uh it, it's a an, a journal article called scientific autonomy public accountability and the rise of peer review
1: in the cold war united states by melinda baldwin uh Yes, I have not read that article yet. I'm going to to put something else in the show notes to be linked. Sure. Um, it's a article from 2018 on. It's an interview on just more of a uh, non academic, but therefore like more readable platform from a uh, from a guy named Robert Harrington, um, which is also a, a pretty good history of peer review. I will note I'm a little bit offended that uh, you noted that you weren't. Aware of some of the history of peer review uh, prior to this, because I I think I did a segment on the podcast about it before.
0: Well, but, I, I was not aware of the explicit admission from journals that they started outsourcing reviews simply because they didn't feel like doing oh, it, yeah. doing it anymore. No, that
1: that's fair. Um, one of the other one of the other big factors, at least in the U.S. and so one of the things that's kind of um, like almost universally accepted is just that peer review is a very good system. Um, which, like I said, the, the research, or like you said, the research tends to suggest that it's not that good of a system. So then, then the question is like, how did we get it in our ideas or like, how how did we get it in our heads in the first place that it did work really, really well? Um, and it seems to mostly be like a marketing campaign by scientists, which is very impressive because I I would just assume most scientists aren't great at marketing. Um, but like one of the one of the steps along that history was, uh, in the U.S. during the recession in the 70s, like during the stagflation era, um, uh, people in Congress and the Senate started reviewing projects that the NF that the NSF, the National Science Foundation, was funding. And, and you you still see this discourse today, like, they'll look and see some of the projects getting funded and be like, ah, like, this is frivolous, this is a waste of taxpayer dollars, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we need to cut funding to the NSF, or uh, in the case of the 70s, bring more of that funding under congressional oversight to make sure that, uh, I mean, since it was during the Cold War, it was like, We need to make sure that the NSF is funding projects that can help us like blow up the rooskies if it comes to that. Like that, that was, that was kind of the vibe. Um, and the NSF was like, fuck that. Like we, we don't want, we don't want politicians like meddling in our funding. Like we are scientists. We understand the needs of the fields we cover better than they do. Uh, and so they like, that's when they shifted to a peer review model, not for, not for publication, but for grant funding, Mm. um, to, to basically say, like, look, you want more eyes on, on the funding that, that the NSF gives out, but, like, we think other scientists in this field will understand that better than just, like, random senators from, you know, random states that don't know anything about science. Uh, and so they sold that to Congress just as a way to get less congressional oversight. And so in doing so, they had to to sell the process of peer review for funding as, like, This is this really good thing that we know works really well and will definitely work better than this like alternate system you're proposing. And and then from there, it kind of like trickled down further into actual publication.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, practical tape takeaways from this uh, for people who are listening along, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, One is that as people start exploring these alternative publishing models, like just throwing something up on a preprint server or, uh, you know, doing this, which is basically a preprint with comments uh, from, uh, you know, specifically selected reviewers. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you start seeing these types of papers, you have you you can't really assume like, oh, this has been peer reviewed, and therefore it's correct. Counterpoint, you probably never should have assumed that in the first place.
1: Yes. And and I think that I think that if that instills a little more doubt in people, that's ultimately a good thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I I
0: saw a lot of chatter that was saying, well, how can we just blindly assume that all these papers are rigorous and very good? And I was like, were you doing that previously? <laughs> like, why? Like, you're, you're acting as... So people were like, oh, well, these guys, you know, people are just going to publish papers here so they can have a link and a DOI and say, look at this research I published. You know, all my wacky ideas are actually science. And that would make sense if it literally didn't already happen, but it absolutely already happens within the normal peer review process.
1: I mean, if anything, I think this is preferable because the way it would work now, if you were trying to get dodgy research published, is you might try to, to slip it into a good journal in the first place. They send it out for peer review. Maybe the peer reviewers do a good job. Maybe you just get desk rejected and ultimately the paper gets rejected and you just need to move on to some other journal. But the thing is, there are so many journals, and and like there are enough scammy journals that are basically just pay to play that you will be able to get that paper published somewhere. And generally, like reviewer comments in most journals aren't open yet. So as it is, like it takes a little bit more effort to get dodgy stuff published, but you absolutely can still get it published. And then you know it's it's sitting there in PubMed without any pushback. With this model, if you're trying to get something dodgy published, well, cool. Like, it gets published right off the bat, and there are reviewer letters attached to it saying, like, well, this is published, but it's kind of bullshit, you know? Yeah. So yeah. There, there is, like, within kind of that document itself, there, there's pushback that wouldn't exist otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that this removes the automatic credibility of a paper being published, and I struggle to see that as a bad thing.
1: Yeah, I, I am all for that. <laughs> um, all
0: right, so moving on, Greg, you have some hard-hitting science to share as well. <laughs> uh,
1: I do, I do. Um, no, th- this was just kind of a shit post. Uh, a a rugby strength coach on uh, Twitter tweeted a scatter plot uh, showing the the relationship between bench press one rep max and uh, number of self-reported sexual partners. I believe, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe I recognize this data set. I think this was a survey from the R Bodybuilding subreddit back in twenty eighteen. But don't <laughs> quote me on that. I could be wrong. Um but yeah, no, the, the funny part about it was just that uh there, there was one person with so most of the bench presses were about what you'd expect. Somewhere somewhere from the the like low to mid hundreds in terms of pounds up to uh, like 300, 350, you know, the normal weights that people bench press. And within that range, it didn't seem like there was really any relationship at all between uh, self-reported bench press max and self-reported uh, number of sexual partners. But the funny thing was there was one individual who bench pressed more than 100 pounds more than anyone else. Uh, they benched 450 in, in the next Five highest. Fi- or, or, no, yeah, yeah. Or f- 550, yeah, yeah. They bench press five fifty, and the next highest was like looks like four thirty, maybe. Um, anyway, that person reported no sexual partners, which is is just inherently funny. I think it, like that that's a guy who's really dedicated to his craft. I,
0: I think it's funny uh, just because. It almost present. It's like, uh, what if uh, an Excel figure was actually an advertisement for Animal Pack? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, of just the like, oh my god, yes. just like in a dungeon, being like, oh, I'm so focused on on this bench press that you know, it, it's it's the only thing in my mind right now. But to be clear, we're not trying to reinforce any narratives that it's good or bad to have a high or low number of sexual partners or anything like that. Uh, But but this kind of tweet definitely uh, fuels plenty of jokes because there's kind of a a running joke and a running stereotype that that a lot of young guys get into lifting and they're really excited about how it's going to have this huge impact on their dating life.
1: And uh, it it doesn't always go that way. Absolutely. I I think that I think that doing a a shit post review segment of the podcast might be a new low for us, but I'm honestly completely (laughs) fine with it.
0: Yeah. All right. uh, Speaking of a new low. We've got a couple great segments today, but before we do that, we need to shamelessly sell out. So we're going to take a quick timeout for an obscene profit break. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we
1: know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric, but... I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families,
0: but it's even more important to protect corporate entities.
1: I could not agree more. The U.S. Supreme Court knows that corporations are people, and the team at Stronger by Science, LLC, knows that corporations are some of the most important people around. That's why
0: I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms.
1: That's good thinking, Eric. You got to keep your friends close and enemies closer.
0: Absolutely. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart.
1: And I should note if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well.
0: That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case by case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership. Comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages the sports nutrition association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members this ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the sports nutrition association If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist with the Sports Nutrition Association today. Uh, If you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. All right, so Greg, uh, your segment today,
1: what do you have for us? Uh, Yeah, so I am talking about uh, partial range of motion training, uh, specifically for strength. So um, I I partnered with Milo Wolf, who... Uh, recently, pre-printed a meta-analysis examining uh, the research, looking at the impact of range of motion on strength development, muscle growth, uh, et cetera. And we have a very in-depth article that is going to drop on November first. I believe this episode is going to be published in full on the thirty-first. Um, so, if if you are listening to the full episode and not uh, one of the clips that gets posted on YouTube beforehand. That article will be up tomorrow. Um, but I think most of the current interest around this topic is related to the impact of longer versus shorter ranges of motion and training at longer versus shorter muscle lengths on hypertrophy. But there is some some pretty interesting research uh, looking at the effect of uh, partial range of motion training per se, but more importantly, uh, combining partial and full range of motion training for uh, improving full range of motion strength gains. So that is what this segment is going to be talking about. Um, so Eric, have you, have, have you ever experiment experimented much with partial range of motion training, things like rack pulls, uh, board press, etc. cetera? Yeah, for sure. What's, what's your, uh, what's your, your current vibe around those training practices and, and what's, what's your experience? um well back in the day a great way
0: to make my bench press seem higher was to simply not go as low nice. so that that was my first venture into uh into limited range of motion training uh no i my, my perspective has been poisoned because i've read all of the mass articles as a reviewer of mass mm-hmm. <laughs> so i I'm i'm kind of up to speed with what the research shows but i know like you know for me i when i was you know back in the day before looking into all the literature I would use partial range of motion stuff for a variety of different reasons. I mean, sometimes if I was, sometimes it's very intuitive, right? So like I used to do like, you know, uh, various, uh, bench press variations and you could tell when you'd get that stretch at the bottom of the rep, you could really feel your pecs stretching out. I mean, I would crank half repetitions in that lengthened position, Mm -hmm like crazy and just you know you feel the burn and the pump and all that stuff so even before looking at the research it was very clear to me you know there is something different here uh to some extent about altering range of motion so i i think partials partials on bench
1: on both sides of the spectrum are really the biggest thing that i would that i would do nice cool yeah i i'm in a I, i'm in a similar boat uh used to do a lot of pin press used to do a lot of board press um also really really enjoy block pulls uh used to do a ton of rack pulls until like uh, until i i basically just got strong enough that it would bend bars like rack pulls are very very rough on bars that that's not an i'm very strong statement that is a if you do rack pulls with a fair bit of weight that's very rough on bars statement um but yeah like I, i i like partials i think they're fun um but I think that they have fallen out of favor in a lot of circles these days. Um, I, I think that people became, you know, generally acquainted with the principle of specificity, the idea that, Hey, if I want to get strong through a full range of motion, I should train through a full range of motion and especially like overload type partials. So things like uh board press or pin press or block pulls or half squats, uh, they've been, I, I think in the general consciousness of the lifting community, kind of consigned to to the bin of ego lifting. Um, you know, where where maybe if you're doing equipped lifting, where lockout strength might be a really big concern, eh, maybe they have a role, but if especially if you're trying to do raw lifting, um, I, I just don't see as much partial range of motion training as I used to, like it, it really seems to have fallen out of favor. But but partial range of motion training uh, through again through short muscle links, so like overload partials do have a a long and illustrious history in in the strength community. So two of the two of the great pioneers at least of like the American strength training tradition uh, built some pretty legendary lifts uh, on the backs of a lot of partials. So uh, one was Bob Peoples, who I believe is the first person to ever deadlift over seven hundred pounds. Um, his best deadlift was seven twenty-eight at one eighty-one, which uh, in, in, which he pulled in nineteen forty-six, I believe. Which if he did it today, would still be the twelfth best deadlift all time in the one eighty-one class uh, for for like drug tested federations. And uh, which I mean, like I don't think steroids had reached the backwoods of Tennessee, which is where Bob Peoples was from in 1946. But even if you're like, ah, like he he somehow had the gear hookup a year after World War II, um, it, it, like that pull would still be top 50 uh, at 181, even counting untested Fed. So like, uh, just just leaps and bounds ahead of the competition back in the 40s. Um, he he did a lot of. You know what we would know today as rack pulls to build his deadlift. A, a lot of deadlifts from just below knee height, just above uh, knee height, in order to build his lockout strength. And then uh, a, another very famous example is Paul Anderson, um, who built his his legendary. And I use that that term with all of all of the assumed connotations. Legendary, both in terms of. It was doubtlessly a very impressive squat, but legendary also in the term of it may have been a legend and his squat wasn't as good as people have claimed. Um, But yeah, like an incredible squatter um, who it is claimed that he potentially squatted 1,200 pounds, which uh, I don't know how much I buy that, but also when you see pictures of the guy He looks like the type of guy who might have been able to squat 1,200 pounds. Hard to say. But um, he was famous for like one of his squat training methods is he would dig a hole and basically just have like a squat bar on the ground and get down into the hole and just do partial reps. And then once he could do, I think like eight to 10 reps at at a certain height. He would just put some dirt in the hole so now the hole is not quite as deep and the range of motion is a little bit longer and you know do partial squats that way as well um so if you've ever heard of people referring to bottom up pin squats as anderson squats that's why um but just very cool very innovative uh you know you don't have a squat rack you can just dig a hole very cool stuff also just as an aside paul anderson did all sorts of just like very fun sounding training back in the day uh, one story, and, and this is a little bit far afield, but it's it's a nice story that I think people should know. Um, so he was he was most famous, I think, for just really really incredible squat strength and really really incredible overhead press strength. And one of the things he used to do is he he had a farm, he had a lot of land, and he just enjoyed golf, like like as as an amateur golfer. Uh, I, like I don't think he was particularly good, but I, I imagine it was. It was a situation where he could he could slap a drive a mile. Um, and he would set up a squat rack on either end of his big field and load like 800 pounds on one of the bars and like 400 pounds on the other bar. And just go out there with his driver, a golf ball, and like a gallon of milk. And start on, on the squat rack with 800 pounds, do a couple reps of squats, smack the ball across the field, sipping on his milk as he went. And Get, this was in Tennessee, um, no, no. Uh, Bob Peoples was from Tennessee. Paul Anderson was from somewhere in the South. I think Georgia, but don't, don't quote me on that. Okay. Cause when you said milk, my first thought was the old
0: anchor man. Milk was a bad choice. Ye- I just, I just think of being like 98 degrees
1: squatting 800 gallon of milk. I not, mean, I, not good. I guess he was just built different. Yeah. Uh, anyway, smack the ball to the other end of the field, do like two or three reps of shoulder press with the 400 pound bar and then just smack the ball back. Uh, so you know, getting some steps in, getting some low intensity cardio, and and just making a day of of doing squats and overhead press. Uh, very very cool. Anyway, so yeah, there, there's a there's a proud history of partials in the strength training uh tradition. And one thing I'll note is the um the story of Paul Anderson allegedly squatting twelve hundred pounds is. Far more interesting than I realized I, I found a really cool article on breaking muscle that will be linked in the show notes um, essentially just breaking down how plausible it was for it to have potentially happened like essentially the apparatus used for his alleged 1200 pound squat could it have actually held 1200 pounds um, like like what were the incentives around this because essentially it was it was a show. Um, where he was performing in a casino in Reno, Nevada. And instead of just like a squat bar, it was two big uh, metal and glass boxes that were allegedly loaded with um, like 15,000 silver dollars. So 7,500 in one box, 7,500 in the other box. Uh, And that in combination with the weight of the apparatus itself was allegedly, depending who you ask, either 1160 pounds or 1200 pounds. And he would apparently, uh, go and squat it for a crowd with kind of the, the old, the old time circus strongman gambit of if anyone else in the audience can do this, uh, you can have the, the 1500 bucks, which this was, I think in the fifties. So that was a ton of money back then. And so, you know, the article gets into, well, you know, it probably wasn't actually 1200 pounds, but there were other strong people back then. Um, and so there, there was incentive for it to be very, very heavy because if it wasn't and someone else claimed that money, you know, the casino's out of fifteen, fifteen thousand $15,000. Um, and also like the fact that it was silver dollars is important because this intersected with debates in the U S at the time about, should we move to the silver standard versus the gold standard or like paper money, all of that, like Williams, Janine Bryan stuff. Um, and and the the folks who ran this casino in Nevada were very into the idea of a silver standard, which you just don't see that many overlaps between powerlifting and monetary policy. So, uh, very cool story. Anyway, intro out of the way. Let's uh, let's actually get into the research on the topic. So, um, in general, I, I think we all kind of know and acknowledge this. For the most part, if you had to pick one training modality, like if you had to pick one type of range of motion to train through and you wanted to build strength through a full range of motion, you should do full range of motion training. That is not particularly controversial. That's uh, strongly empirically supported. Um, uh, In in Milo's meta-analysis, that was one of the things they looked at. And like, yeah, uh, for tests of full range of motion strength, full range of motion training works better than partial range of motion training. Like that's uh, that's not uh, uh, controversial at all. However, uh, most people who would be doing some partial range of motion training are also still going to be doing full range of motion training as well. Like if you're a power and you want to do some block pulls, you'll probably still be doing deadlifts from the floor. If you want to do some board press, you'll probably still be doing plenty of bench press to your chest. So I think the more interesting and relevant question is, what does the research have to say about combining different ranges of motion instead of just doing full range of motion training versus just doing partial range of motion training? Because, you know, in in science, we like to be able to create clear dichotomies, isolate variables, and just say, okay, full range versus partial range, what are the differences? But at least for uh, for ecological validity to better reflect how people train in the real world. Uh, I think the, the research looking at a combination of different ranges of motion is just a lot more informative about um, w- what you could expect using the methods that people would actually use in real training. So uh, yeah, let's let's dive in. There are four relevant studies that I'm going to discuss here briefly. Uh, the first one was by Basler and colleagues from 2014. Uh, all of the studies I, I mentioned will be in the show notes. And so uh, in this study, one group, uh, so there were two groups of subjects. One group um, just trained squats through a full range of motion, doing six sets twice per week. Uh, and the other group uh, also trained squats twice, twice per week, doing three sets through a full range of motion and three sets of partial squats. So through about 80 degrees of knee flexion or or, or roughly half squats. Um, So the total number of sets were equated, but one group just did all full squats. The other group did 50-50 full squats and half squats. Uh, It was a seven-week training intervention. And uh, long story short, there weren't statistically significant differences between groups, but the nominal differences did lean in favor of the group doing a combination of full and partial range of motion training. So uh, their one rep max full squat increased by about 8.2% on average versus 5.1% in the group only doing full squats. Uh, And uh, also the the group doing a combination of full and partial squats experienced nominally larger gains in partial squat one rep max as well, though that is not particularly surprising. Uh, Moving on, the second study was by Gillingham and Debeliso, And I'll note, uh, the Gillingham in this study is Brad Gillingham, which, if you're into powerlifting at all, uh, I assume you know who Brad Gillingham is, and if you don't, shame on you. He is an absolute legend. Uh, he won six world championships in powerlifting, and uh, I, I believe he has still, to this day, pulled more than 800 pounds in competition, more discreet times than any other human. Just a, a legendary deadlifter, uh, and his his best deadlift was uh, 400 kilos in, in the super heavyweight class. Um, so, it's it's very cool to see him uh, getting into the lab, getting his hands dirty. And I'll note, if if uh, you're listening to this and, and you ever encounter the perspective of someone online being like, ah, man, uh, exercise science researchers, they don't know anything about real strength training. Eh, I mean, here's an anecdote that at least one of them does. Uh, Brad Gillingham, absolute legend in powerlifting. So in this group, it was, or in this study, it, it was a six-week training study, um, in a group of collegiate wrestlers uh, undergoing their preseason training program and uh, one group just did full range of motion deadlifts Um, the other group subbed out one of those sets of full range of motion deadlifts for uh, three singles through a partial range of motion from just above uh, the kneecap so the the total number of sets weren't equated between groups but the the group doing full only full range of motion training it was like it, it, it was sets that looked like pretty challenging sets of five. And the the singles for the, the block pulls that they did, or rack pulls, weren't with like super, super, super max loads, not like 150% of 1RM. As someone who's done a lot of deadlift training, the, the total stress that the two groups underwent, I think was more or less equivalent. Just just th- that is my my personal belief. Um, but yeah, so they they trained for six weeks. Uh, the group only doing full range of motion training uh, actually experienced a small, non-significant decrease in strength uh, of about uh, 5.3 kilos on their full full range of motion deadlift, whereas the group doing a combination of full and partial range of motion training uh, experienced a small increase in deadlift strength uh, of about 4.5 kilos. So again, much like the Basler study, that didn't amount to a statistically significant difference between groups but the nominal difference did did lean in favor of doing a combination of full and partial range of motion training instead of just full range of motion and then once again very unsurprisingly uh, the group doing some partial range of motion training also experienced uh, significantly larger gains in uh, uh, rack pull strength so they they tested one one rep max for rack pulls as well uh, moving on third study was by pedrosa and colleagues this one i believe was published in 2021 And it's not exactly uh, the same as as the prior study. So the prior two studies compared full range of motion training versus a combination of full and partial range of motion training. This one compared full range of motion training to a combination of two different partial ranges of motion. So uh, one group did knee extensions through a full range of motion. The other group did half of their sets through a partial range of motion through the bottom half of the lift and half of their sets through a partial range of motion through the top half of the lift. Um, so a, a combination of two different partial ranges of motion. Um, and uh, yeah, overall, this one was very similar. They they trained for 12 weeks. Uh, there were overall uh, five groups in this study. So if you're watching on YouTube, when we uh, throw up the figure from the study, you will see uh, five bars. But the, the two that are relevant for this discussion here will have a red box around them. Um... But yeah, uh, so they, they tested uh, strength gains in this study through uh, the bottom half of the range of motion, so, so partial range of motion strength through the bottom half, partial range of motion strength through the top half, and also uh, full range of motion strength gains through the full range of motion. Uh, and in all cases, the combination of those two partial ranges of motion produce larger strength gains than just training through a full range of motion, again, even when equating uh, total sets and the difference was statistically significant for strength gains through the bottom half of the range of motion, but for full range of motion strength gains, as we saw in the Basler study and the Gillingham study, nominal differences in favor of the partials, um, but it wasn't a statistically significant difference. And then finally, uh, the last of these four studies, uh, 2020 paper by Whaley and colleagues, Um, and, and this one was slightly different again. Instead of so the, the, other, the other three studies, essentially you'd have one group doing full range of motion training and the other groups basically doing half of their training through a full range of motion or, or through the bottom half of the range of motion and half of their training through a partial range of motion at short muscle lengths. And, and you know, like 50-50 per session, per week, whatever. In the Whaley study, uh, they used progressive range of motion training, much like Uh, Paul Anderson, filling in that hole for his progressive range of motion squats. This was a seven-week training study. There was one group squatting through a full range of motion every session and another group doing progressive range of motion training. So uh, they were doing pin squats, basically starting from like a a quarter squat height with the pins getting lower and lower and lower each workout, such that by week seven, it was basically doing pin squats through uh, effectively a full range of motion um and once again just like the other three studies they tested full range of motion squat one rep max and there wasn't a statistically significant difference between groups but the nominal differences once again leaned in favor of the group doing a combination of full and partial range of motion training in this case it was progressive range of motion training so uh, that group uh, experienced a a 14 and a half kilo increase in squat one rep max on average versus 11 kilos for the group only doing full range of motion training. And also in, in this study, they looked at gains in vertical jump height, which were also nominally larger in the group uh, doing progressive range of motion training. So when you look at these four studies in aggregate, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a Rorschach test, I would say. Um, if you wanted to interpret them very, very conservatively, you could say, hey, the scientists have had four bites at the apple this time and have thus far failed to, pre- failed to demonstrate statistically significant differences between these two training styles. Or you could interpret it a little more liberally and say, well, look, you know, the, the concept of statistical significance is kind of arbitrary in the first place. Um, you know, is, is P of 0.07 really that different from P of 0.03? Uh, and ultimately, we have four relatively similar studies finding very similar results. Um, So, you know, maybe there's something to it. And ultimately, I'm still skeptical, but bullish, I would say. Like, I I would want to see another couple of studies. uh, Like, I I think if we got two more studies that also showed kind of nominal differences in favor of the combination, even if they weren't statistically significant, or just one more study where There was like a pretty big, statistically significant, very notable difference between the two approaches. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, like at this point we can probably cash this in, put put a pretty pretty substantial number of eggs in that basket. Um, But yeah, it's it's to me right now kind of right on that knife's edge of of how seriously we should take this. Um, But it, I mean, the the balance of evidence to this point does broadly suggest that a combination of full and partial range of motion training probably on average produces slightly larger strength gains than exclusively training through a full range of motion. Then the next the next obvious question is, well, why would that be? And to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> it could simply be a matter of variety. So uh there was a, a 2014 paper by Fonseca and colleagues kind of use as an object lesson here, where uh, there were two groups in that study that only did squats, uh, and two groups in that study that did squats, and also a variety of other lower body exercises. But, you know, uh, like, for example, the, the two groups just doing squats, I think wound up doing like eight sets of squats per workout. And the groups doing a variety of exercises would do two sets of squats, two sets, I think, of deadlifts, two sets of lunges or something like that, maybe two sets of uh, uh, essentially like sissy squats, something like that. I, I, I forget all of the details, but that that was the basic setup. And uh, the groups doing a variety of different exercises in that study uh, gained more squat strength than the groups just doing squats. Uh, which suggests that, you know, like you you certainly need specificity to gain strength, but there, there might just be some inherent benefit to having some variety and not being hyper specific all the time. So, you know, in, in this case, th- that could be all we're seeing, you know, maybe, maybe partial range of motion training isn't like super beneficial per se, but just like subbing out a third or a half of your full range of motion training, like if you're doing 20 sets of full range of motion squats, you know, maybe like competition style, maybe subbing out 10 of those sets for half squats or pin squats or pause squats or box squats or band squats or just like basically anything else. Like it it could, we could just be seeing an effect that is attributable to variety rather than partial range of motion training per se. Um, it's, it's, I think this is, uh, somewhat dubious, but I, I think I would get called out for it if I didn't at least mention it. One, uh, one kind of like historical reason that, that people have cited in the past for why like overload style partials, short muscle length partials that, that you can just load heavier than full range of motion training. One reason people have proposed that those might be beneficial is that they could have uh like outsized effects on connective tissue strength or bone strength, which you know, downstream of that that might result in larger strength gains. To my knowledge, there's not much, if any, direct evidence for this. Um, and, and the research we do have looking at uh like changes in, in tendon strength with training tends to suggest that load actually isn't all that important. Like resistance training is good. But as long as it's like a reasonably challenging load, it seems to have like pretty comparable effects on gains in tendon strength. So I'm pretty skeptical about that, but you know, that is a potential mechanism that hasn't been directly investigated, so can't fully rule it out. And then another possibility is that it could be mostly psychological, where uh, especially for one rep max testing and especially for people who aren't that experienced with one rep max testing, there, there's kind of the the oh shit factor, you know? Like if, if you're attempting a new one rep max bench, attempting a new one rep max squat, uh, as soon as you unrack that weight and feel it in your hands or on your shoulders, maybe you're capable of it, but Jesus Christ, it's just fucking scary, you know? Uh, If you've never touched anything that heavy before. So, you know, it, it could be that uh, overload partials just help on that front. Just get you used to feeling more weight so that maybe they don't actually make you that much stronger, but they kind of help you psychologically be able to lift the weights you are actually capable of lifting without just kind of shutting down and locking up when you feel those really heavy one rep max attempts. It'd be really cool if someone were to do
0: a study uh, where they did like, for example, if they were looking at squats and had the, you know, had one of the groups just doing walkouts to mm-hmm. try to kind of be like, Hey, just so you know, here's what this really heavy stuff feels like. Yeah. Like th- there would be a way experimentally to get at that. But I mean, I assume no one's done that.
1: I I don't believe they have. Yeah. Um, but I, I will note, I don't think that this potential explanation explains all of these findings because the, the Pedrosa study was looking at knee extensions I don't think anyone gets like that. Oh shit! Feeling you get for a one rep max squat when you feel a really heavy load against your ankle for knee extensions. You know, like I, I just I don't think that's a thing. You're you're not lifting the way I'm lifting. Fair enough. Um, but yeah. So you know, th- this is I, I think a an interesting and developing uh, area of research that that like I said, I, I'm not willing to put. Uh the the full like unabashed stamp of approval on it i'm not willing to put all of my eggs in the basket of saying it is definitely beneficial to do a combination of full and partial range of motion training versus just full range of motion training like we're we're definitely not to that point yet uh, but I, I do find this this interesting and pretty promising um, one other thing to note about these studies is Uh, I mostly focused on the gains in full range of motion one rep max strength, uh, like those outcomes, because, I mean, quite simply, I know that that's what most of the people in our audience care about. Um, But these studies did report a variety of other benefits that also leaned in favor of doing a combination of full and partial range of motion training. So, like I mentioned with the Pedrosa study, they tested strength not just through a full range of motion, but through the bottom of the range of motion and the top of the range of motion. And the uh, variety partial range of motion group, like doing half through the bottom, half through the top, that seemed to outperform full range of motion training through all three of those ranges of motion. In the Basler study, um, there there were some measurements looking at rate of force development during isometric squats. That stuff leaned in favor of uh, a combination of full and partial range of motion training. Uh, in the Gillingham study, again, non-significant difference for gains in full range of motion deadlift strength, but a significant difference in favor of a combination of full and partial in terms of gain in in terms of gains in uh, partial range of motion deadlift strength. And then for the Whaley study, uh, they looked at jump height as well. Again, nominal difference, leaning in favor of progressive range of motion training in in that group or in that study. So, you know, it, it seems like there's, um, it, it seems like there, there might be just like other small upsides of, of doing a bit of partial range of motion training, uh, as well beyond potential beneficial effects on full range of motion, one rep max strength gains. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's, it's interesting, but, uh, I'm not like 100% sold on it yet. That's, that's about where I'm at. So in, in terms of the verdict here and, and my recommendations after uh, you know going through this body of research and, and, ruminating, and ruminating on it a little bit, um, I think that there's definitely a, a situation where it does make a lot of sense to do some partial range of motion training uh, for the purpose of strength development. And that is, you know, if you're if your weakness is through the top part of a range of motion for a particular lift, like if you miss deadlifts at lockout, if you miss bench press at lockout, probably not going to miss squats at lockout. Like it's it's mostly it's mostly uh, bench press and deadlift. But, you know, in, in that case, uh, board press, pin press, uh, block pulls, rack pulls might make a ton of sense to add in independent of just like the general the generalized effects of combining ranges of motion in your case like it seems like the partial range of motion training can help correct a specific issue you have and and help you uh develop strength through a range of motion where you're currently weak so for for if you're in that boat seems like some partial range of motion training makes all the sense in the world if you're not in that boat um I'm not I'm not ready to confidently say that subbing out some of your full range of motion training for partials will definitely improve strength gains. Uh but but I am bullish overall. Um and also like my my personal experience with this is overall positive. Um like I I don't know that I've gotten that much out of partials for bench press, but I I have gotten a lot out of partials for deadlift in particular. Um my, my deadlift was uh st- Stalled in the like low six hundreds for a long time, and doing progressive range of motion deadlift training, just like starting at like eight hundred pounds for very very partial range of motion deadlifts, like from well above uh knee height, and you know just just going down, um, like like going down in in rack height after I could get five or ten reps. So you know two inch range of motion to start with. Once I get get ten reps there uh, drop it down a couple inches. Once I could get 10 reps there, drop it down a couple inches. Um, and once I could pull 800 for, uh, like, like four or five reps from just below knee height, I could put the bar on the floor and deadlift over seven. Like it, it seemed to put about 80 pounds on my deadlift, uh, doing that. Um, and I'll note, it, it only seemed to work once. I've tried that again. I didn't see the same effect, but at least through one one run of partial range of motion or like progressive range of motion deadlift training, I got a ton of mileage out of it. So, um, you know, my my personal experience with with partials, it, at least like partially backs up the research here. Um, and, and just as a couple final notes, uh, uh, doing partial range of motion training at short muscle length, so kind of overload partials, is probably worse for hypertrophy than full range of motion training. So, you know, if, if you're, um, if you're attempting to move up a weight class by adding more muscle to your frame, or you know, just trying to to build more muscle, fill out your frame so you can lift more, um, you, you probably don't want to go overboard with with the overload partials. Um, and if you do sub out like a pretty significant percentage of your full range of motion training for partials may not be a bad idea to do some targeted accessories to kind of fill that gap. So, you know, if if you uh, were previously doing 20 sets of bench press per week and you move to doing 10 sets of full range of motion bench press and like 10 sets of, um, you know, rack presses or board presses or something like that, may may not be a terrible idea to add in some additional uh, accessory exercises for your pecs and triceps to kind of make up for that difference. Um, there, there's no research on that, but I think just kind of a priori, that's, that's probably not a bad idea to, to make sure you're not, uh, compromising hypertrophy results. And then, uh, finally, just, just as a parting note, um, I I think that there's this, this, uh, sense, at least in some communities that doing any sort of overload partial is just purely ego lifting, um, that there's, no possible beneficial effect you could get from it. Um so if you know if, if you want to give partials a shot, maybe you do some half squats, maybe you do some block pulls, whatever. Uh if someone tries to call you out for ego lifting, uh yeah, fuck 'em, you know? That's that's kind of my perspective and uh send them to to this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast to and tell them to use the discount code too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um but yeah, like they're it's to to be extremely clear, like there is some promising research in this area. It is absolutely and very much not uh, purely ego lifting.
0: All right. Good stuff. You ready to move on? Yes, sir. All right. So I've got a segment that is actually pretty short here. So a lot of times I will make a tidy list of the 27 points that I'm trying to make over the course of a segment. In this case... It's really just one pretty broad point, and we want to look at it from a few different angles. Um, So before I get into it, Greg, a a question for you. Uh, Fitness-oriented diet, you know, we're going to really clean up the diet, uh, pursuing some kind of body composition goal. Like, let's say maybe, you know, going to, you know, build some muscle, lose some body fat. Maybe you're trying to recomp what are the two most important values that you're going to track and monitor as it pertains to your diet? Uh, probably total calorie intake and protein intake. That is a very sensible answer. Um, so obviously, total calorie intake is going to have a huge impact. I mean, it's it's going to you know determine whether or not you're in negative or positive energy balance or neutral. And it's really going to have a huge impact on how your body weight and body fat fluctuate over the course of the diet Uh, but protein is a close second because without question we know that you need enough protein to support your goals whether you're trying to build new muscle or maintain the muscle that you have during a fat loss phase Um, it's uh, very uncontroversial to suggest that if you intentionally restrict your protein to very low levels that's not gonna be great for hypertrophy, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, you know, we'll interact with folks who say, you know, I'd like to clean up my diet a little bit, but I'm not really that interested in really meticulously watching my carb intake and my my fat intake and the ratio between them. In many cases, we can just say, whatever, it's fine. Just watch your calories, watch your protein. The exact amount of carbs and fats, in most cases, not really gonna matter that much. Uh, so, we know that calories are absolutely crucial, but we know that protein is important too. Um, and in the evidence based fitness world, almost everybody recommends getting around 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day of protein. Uh, a lot of people alternatively will say, well, I'll go for like one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is 2.2 grams per kilogram. So there's this particular range that has gotten really, really, really popular. And what I want to the question I want to address in this uh, segment here is how important is it to specifically get within that precise range? Because I suspect while I agree that that is a very good range and, and kind of the if you know nothing about someone, you just know that muscle is important to them and they're into fitness, how much protein should they get? That is the range of numbers that I would start with in a in a majority of cases, but I suspect that a lot of people really dramatically overestimate the downsides and the ramifications of undershooting this target range just a little bit. uh you know w- we came out with macro factor over a year ago. This is a really common genre of question is am I eating enough protein? If I go from the moderate setting to the low setting, is, am I losing something in that process? Protein intake comes up a lot, and it's usually coming from a place of concern about what if I don't get 1.6 grams per kilogram per day? Mm-hmm. So there was a relatively new meta-analysis. Uh, I, think it, I think it was published like an e-print online ahead of print uh, a couple months ago or a few months ago, but it was by Nunes and colleagues. And the the title was systematic review and meta analysis of protein intake to support muscle mass and function in healthy adults. Uh, So in terms of the purpose, a little quote here, we, the authors performed a systematic review, meta analysis and meta regression to determine if increasing daily protein ingestion contributes to gaining lean body mass, muscle strength and physical slash functional test performance in healthy subjects. So They did uh, a really nice uh, meta-analytic model. They they did a three-level random effects model, which uh, properly accounts for everything that they should have been accounting for statistically. They did a very nice job with their analysis, and they were able to pool data from a total of 74 randomized controlled trials that fit their inclusion criteria. Um, Now, I'm going to cut right to the chase here. Um, There's a quote with the, uh, the results here. The evidence suggests that increasing daily protein ingestion may enhance gains in lean body mass in studies enrolling subjects in resistance exercise. Uh, The standardized mean difference, the effect size basically, was 0.22. And uh, so, yeah, they they concluded, yes, adding more protein, generally a positive thing for lean body mass. I'm not going to get into all the strength and physical function stuff because if your protein is making you stronger... It's probably happening via increases in muscle mass in, mm-hmm. in, in this kind of framework, uh, yeah. in this kind of research approach. Um, now, that, that sounds like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then when you look into the, uh, the table here, if you look at table two in the original paper, and I'll put it up on the screen here, you can see that there is, uh, to some extent, a, a bit of a graded effect. Um, so they, they looked at the trials uh, with lifters where protein was under 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, and the effect size was negative 0.14. which So basically indicating it wasn't statistically significant. You'd look at that and say, well, why would more protein lead or, or, you know, why would there be a negative effect size of lifting with, you know, protein under 1.2? You'd still expect some relatively positive effect. But, you know, basically, w- when you look at the confidence interval, we can interpret that as basically zero-ish. You know, so yeah. it's not like, you know, lifting on a low protein diet is going to induce precipitous muscle loss or anything like that. Uh, but but the effect size in terms of lean body mass gains uh, for people who were consuming less than 1.2 grams per kilogram per day of protein was negative 0.14. When they then looked at participants who were ingesting between 1.2 and 1.59, which is conveniently right below that kind of optimal range we talked about the effect size uh, was 0.17. So it was in in the positive direction there, uh, just on the borderline of what we might call a trivial effect size. And then when they bumped it up to uh, looking at studies where intake was at least 1.6 grams per kilogram per day, uh, then the effect size bumped up to 0.3. So this is assuming, you know, we're, we're kind of putting these studies into bins, Um, and of course, all these studies are going to vary across a a variety of different domains and characteristics, but broadly speaking, you could look at it and say, okay, that tells us that we definitely want to have plenty of protein. And when we bump up into the higher categories, we see better outcomes for lean body mass. But there was a quote in the, uh, I think in the discussion section that I think really highlights the point that I'm getting at here. So they said, uh, they're, they're looking at that standardized mean difference, basically higher protein versus lower point lower protein, the effect size was 0.22. And they said the change represents approximately 1.3 to 1.4 kilograms of lean mass gain during the intervention compared to an average of about 0.8 kilogram gain in the placebo or control group. So what they were looking at here, uh, just broadly speaking, comparing higher versus lower protein intakes, was a difference of about 0.5 to 0.7 kilograms uh, in terms of lean body mass accretion. Uh, so so they were kind of saying, like, listen, yeah, this analysis indicates that higher protein is broadly better for, for uh, the accretion of lean body mass, but we're not talking about an enormous effect here. We're not talking about several additional kilograms of lean body mass within these studies. We're talking about more like a half a kilogram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, when you look at uh, there's there's a big uh, figure that I'm going to put on the screen here. Uh, when you start to look at um, the the actual effect sizes in this forest plot, you kind of get a better sense of the data. Where for for a lot of these studies, the effect size is very comfortably straddling the line of zero. You know, when you look at the at the confidence intervals, a lot of these uh, individual effect sizes are zero-ish or very near zero. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to look at these effect sizes effect sizes, and really kind of chew on them and look at them and interpret them visually so that you can see, like, when we talk about how critical high protein is, what are we really talking about here in more tangible terms? Like, w- not just is there an effect, but what is the size of the effect and how consistent is that effect? Uh, and so I think that figure uh, shows it pretty nicely. If we go on, there's a—I dug into the supplementary file and found figure 12 here, which is on the screen now. It's a bubble plot, and it's basically just showing uh, on the x-axis, you know, what is the protein ingestion in grams per kilogram per day, and then the y-axis is just uh, indicating the amount of increase in lean body mass that was observed, and you look at it, and you can definitely say, okay, that looks like a line that's pointing upward, right? Mm -hmm. But you also see like, you know, if I'm looking at people who are at three grams per kilogram per day, I'm looking at a spread that on the y-axis ranges from a value of one to, you know, maybe like negative 0.25, something like that. Yeah. And if I look all the way down at like 1.2 grams per kilogram uh, of protein, uh, I'm seeing a spread from like negative 0.5 up to like 1.7. Now, there is one that is a bit of an outlier in that regard. That's the, the 1.7 value is really separated from the pack. Um, and I will acknowledge this is very much a visual uh, segment that I'm doing here. So uh, if you're listening along on a purely audio platform, it might, might not be a bad idea to check out the YouTube for a little more context. But I am going to try to you know, verbally describe what we're seeing here. But if you exclude a couple very very high values um that that are kind of just I, I I don't I don't want to use the term outlier cuz there's some statistical connotations that I haven't rigorously checked here but there are a couple values that are really far away from the pack and if you exclude those this looks like a relatively flat relationship once we're getting above like 1.3 ish mm-hmm. something yeah. like that uh so with that in mind, I wanted to take I wanted to take it back to the original. Uh, so everyone always talks about this um, this range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day, and that range specifically, uh, to the best of my knowledge, comes from a, a 2018 meta analysis by Morton and colleagues. Um, so they published this work. It's an excellent meta analysis and meta regression project by Morton and colleagues. So. Uh, I don't want it to seem as if I'm being critical of this work. I'm rather highlighting this work and saying, let's dig in and kind of get some nuance from it here. So, uh, Greg, uh, what we're looking at here um, is a figure from that study. uh, And it is the figure that you see on just about every uh, evidence-based article about protein intake. Uh, And if you're watching along on YouTube, you can see the figure on the screen what I did here was I I used Webplot di- web Digitizer, which is a great tool for for kind of extracting values from figures and studies. Um, and I plotted it myself because I wanted to get rid of the lines. Th- this is a conversation you and I have had many a time over the years. When you throw a best fit line on a regression model, it poisons your mind. Like yeah. you get so fixated on the regression line. Like I could take a, just a random plot of totally just a, a plot with no relationship at all if i just throw a regression line in there you're gonna be like oh yeah i, I see that trend that yeah. makes sense yeah um so i i took all the the lines out and stuff like that not that they're misleading they're they're a good choice for the original paper but if we just look at this distribution broadly how would you describe it greg
1: oh man um yeah, I mean, it ju- just just eyeballing it, it looks like there is maybe a very slight positive association here, but um, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't look like there's any like, super, super clear discernible pattern. Like, th- there are definitely fewer low values in the vicinity of 1.0 than there are in the vicinity of 1.75, for example, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't look like, it's not a super, super clean, uh, super, super strong relationship. Uh, I I would say.
0: Yeah. And I mean, not to cherry pick, but I'll go ahead and cherry pick. Uh, but you know, you look at this, um, at this distribution and you say, well, if if I was consuming, uh, 1.3 grams per kilogram per day how certain am i that my gains will be materially different from someone who's consuming 2.1 and within if you start binning it up into little little uh little sections like that you start to say man it's it's actually kind of hard to to look at a particular intake and say oh i'm i'm quite confident that you're going to be far worse off uh at 1.5 compared to 2.25 mm-hmm. um but anyway l- l- i'm going to show on the screen here uh, it's contextualized a little bit more by adding some axis labels, just so that we can kind of get our bearings uh, and, and kind of really fully contextualize what we're what we're looking at, not just with values, but but with uh, with axis labels. Uh, and then, of course, I'm going to show on the screen a linear trend line. So this linear trend line does indicate that there is, broadly speaking, a positive trajectory to this data. Uh, the trend, uh, the R squared value for the linear trend line is 0.126. So what that tells us is protein intake in grams per kilogram per day is explaining about 12 or 13% of the variance in uh, gains in fat free mass. Uh, Now, one thing I should acknowledge is that the authors used a breakpoint analysis in the original paper, which means they would suggest that a linear trend is not the appropriate trend line for this. Um, but if we we look at uh, a recreation of the original figure, um, this was actually taken from a, a Stronger by Science article. Uh, but but when you add in the, uh, the non-linear trend line with a breakpoint in it, you start to see where that 1.6 number comes from, right? So the the uh, in the original paper, they did this breakpoint analysis and they said, Statistically speaking, our best estimate of the breakpoint here is 1.6. And the reason they're looking for a breakpoint is they're saying, How high do I have to get my protein to to get to a spot where I can say this is comfortably enough to effectively maximize my gains here? Yeah. What they were looking at is where does this relationship between protein and gains in fat free mass essentially become flat? So that's what you're seeing on the screen, but the confidence interval for that breakpoint essentially spans the entirety of the data mm-hmm. uh so so the statistical interpretation of this would be the breakpoint is at one point6 but the 95 conf- percent confidence interval ranges from I, I forget the exact numbers but it was basically like from one to like two point two ish or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. um now this was a, a really fantastic piece of research and I like I said I don't want to make it seem like I'm being critical but what I want to encourage people to do is look at these data slightly differently, okay? Because everyone sees this figure and when you draw the the, the trend line with the break point, you say, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Give me 1.6 at least. Um, but what I want to do is kind of reframe what we're looking at here. So um, in the previous uh, systematic review, I was talking about the meta-analysis by Nunes, the newer one. Uh, I mentioned that they had kind of broken it into categories and one of their categories was they are like, well, let's look at intakes above 1.2. That was kind of a, a, a threshold that they identified. Now, if we look at the same data, and Greg, you can follow along here, uh, we're looking at this data and we're cutting off everything below 1.2. That starts to really change the nature of this relationship to my eye. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you would agree with that. I think it still looks like there's a positive relationship there. But it does not look to be quite as, uh, as a substantial upward trend. I would definitely agree with that. And now on the screen, we're going to look at adding in a trend line. And we're just going with a linear trend line here. Uh, and I would actually, I would contend that the linear trend line is a fairly appropriate fit for this data uh, from my perspective. No, yeah, I I, I agree. So... When we look at that linear trend line and we cut out the the intakes below 1.2, and that's, that's not like arbitrary. Again, I'm trying to kind of pull that number from the Nunes review. We see that the R-squared value becomes 0.044. And so what that's telling us is once we're looking at intakes above 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, protein intake is only explaining about 4%, maybe 5% of the variance in changes in fat-free mass in these studies. Uh, and there is one value in this uh, in this particular data set that is kind of, it, it's certainly not an outlier, but it is head and shoulders above the rest. You know, there, there's this one value up there that's hanging out well above three on the y-axis that does seem to kind of Nudge us towards saying, "Oh, yeah, there, it looks like there's really something to these extra high protein intakes." So, what I did here is uh, I essentially just removed that one value, um, which I now we're getting
1: into the realm of cherry picking a bit. Well, haters might call it cherry picking, but someone else might call it a uh, a, a leave one out analysis. Exactly, <laughs> that that is a, a good point. Is that it's. A very selective
0: leave one out analysis but a lot of times when when someone is saying okay you're doing a meta-analysis a meta regression are you sure that one fluky study isn't really driving the effect here and what you'll do is a leave one out analysis where you'll go through and recalculate the whole analysis just taking out one study at a time so you take one study out you leave the rest recalculate the whole meta and say okay let's try it by pulling out a different study so the original one goes back in you take a new one out yep. and you recalculate again if that sounds awful and tedious and unbearable by the grace of god we have software <laughs> and so <laughs> that whole process is
1: one line of code
0: yeah uh so props to people who make software
1: but but yeah and, and so to be clear ultimately what you're trying to do with a with a leave one out analysis is you want to make sure that one particularly influential data point isn't just driving your results or or having an undue amount of weight. So, uh, you know, if, if you're calculating an effect size or a beta coefficient, you know, do you do you see like a 20% shift in your beta coefficient and your your p value go from like .04 to .15 if you leave one study out? Like do do you see and and this is I think oftentimes it's somewhat subjective. Like basically, you're just looking to see are are there any studies that are really, really influencing this this pooled effect we're we're observing
0: yeah and it, it is subjective, but you know you're gonna if you're doing a leave one out analysis and and there's just one particular study and all of a sudden your your pooled effect size you know drops by thirty percent. you're like, oh crap, like there something is
1: really happening yeah. here you know and, and I'll note just as 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 a bit of inside baseball. I've noticed that leave one out analyses aren't done super frequently in meta-analyses and it seems like they're almost always done when the researchers just like do their literature search, extract the data, plot it, and they're like, "Ah, oh, fuck. Like we've I I know what I'm seeing here. I know one of these studies is skewing <laughs> my results, so Let's say we plan to do a leave one out analysis and then we can present the results with and without that one study.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, it's uh, it's a convenient way to say like, how can I say that that one researcher is completely full of shit, but but make it a systematic process? Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Or or at least get me off the hook for pretending that that one particular finding is actually like representative and, and should be included. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so if we if we remove that one, it doesn't really change that much, honestly. I, I did it because I expected that I, I would look at the data and say, whoa, things are fundamentally quite different here. It doesn't really change that much. And, you know, it's on the screen. You you can kind of make your own assessment there. It still looks like there's, generally speaking, an upward trajectory. But in the interest of being transparent, if I thought it was going to be nifty, I included it, even though it's it doesn't really fundamentally change things that much. Um, I don't want to just, like only include things that are that I expect to be interesting that end up looking interesting. Yeah. Um so then when we look at the trend line again, you know, we, we do see that the R squared value drops from 0.044 uh to 0.029. That's inconsequential uh effectively no impact there. Um and now I'm full blown cherry picking. Um but cherry picking to prove a point. <laughs> So I mentioned... I, I, to be
1: fair, I think that's
0: why most people cherry pick. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not hiding the uh, method by which yeah, I am yeah. selecting fruit. Yeah. I am cherry picking here, but it's merely to be an illustration, which is... But I do think it's pertinent here when we're saying we're going to use this body of literature to determine the minimum uh, protein intake that we should be not just shooting for, but stressing over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, if you are going to say, here is the data set we're using to make that determination, I think you should be able to stress test it and provide various different cutoffs and say, well, how how do the data look when we frame it this way?
1: Yeah, I I, I think that's an important consideration. Like what, what you're doing here, I don't think either of us would argue is like the best and generalizably most rigorous way to approach this. But since there is the question of 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 magnitude and impact, like if if this is the type of thing that is worth stressing about, that's really, really worth getting in your head about, it should be, I would think, robust to, you know, constraining the X axis to an arbitrary degree and excluding one study. You know, if if, like those are those are definitely two cherry picky type things to do, but ultimately that's not that's not any sort of like extreme data torturing and if if the relation the if the previously observed relationship falls apart with that level of stress testing that doesn't mean that the previously observed relationship doesn't exist and isn't maybe worth paying attention to but it probably does mean that it's not a uh sh- a generalizably strong enough thing that you need to lose sleep over it
0: yeah and and to be to be very clear i think the exclusion of one data point is a much more uh questionable practice than just saying okay if you're telling me it i that being below 1.6 is deleterious i should be able to cut this x-axis at 1.3 and still see it yeah right because the i'm still including the the cut point here correct so i I think that the x-axis modifications are fair game the exclusion of one study questionable but as i've shown i'm just reporting like what i was poking around at and it frankly didn't matter so excluding that one study is the more questionable practice and it's the least impactful practice of of, of what we're looking at here yeah so cherry picking i'm just saying hey let's cut the x-axis at 1.24 and just see if we really still believe that that 1.6 cutoff is a very clear, sharp delineation between suboptimal and optimal protein intake. And when we look at the figure, including that one study that's a little larger than the others, it's just not looking like there's much going on here at all. Um, it's it's really difficult to say that people between 1.25 and 1.75 are worse off than people at 2.0 and above. Uh, it, it, it looks like a lot of what's going into that upward trajectory that we see in the original data set is the stuff occurring below 1.24 grams per kilogram per day. If we throw a linear trend line in there, we get an R-squared value of 0.011. So we're explaining 1% of the variance in the change in fat-free mass if we remove that uh that one additional data point that's a little bit larger than the rest uh it doesn't really fundamentally change the visual inspection that much but when you know when we throw on the uh, the trend line again it just doesn't change that much we we've dropped from 0.01 ish to 0.003 um now what is the point of this whole practice it's to say we ought to uh stress test that range a little bit and ask ourselves not just what is the best cutoff we can choose because i you know while it's not um it's not a standard statistical practice to say let's find the break point forget the lower half of the confidence interval and only look at the upper half i i have not seen that as a commonplace statistical method um but i i actually i i mean I think it's a justifiable way to view it um in in practical in a practical sense so i'm I'm not faulting the researchers for doing that, but it is worth kind of just putting that out there um but but if if the claim is one point six, you gotta get there, and if not, you're gonna regret it, then we should be able to cut the axis off at one point two four and say, do we still feel that way? uh and when we look at this data, I think it largely conforms kind of to something that we talked about a long time ago on the show without any data in front of us, without any kind of evidence, you know, without a direct piece of evidence we were going by, we were talking about like, what is the lowest protein intake that you feel generally like fine about? Yeah. And we didn't say the RDA of 0.8. We were both in agreement that that was pretty low. Uh, The number that we both felt pretty good about was like, eh, get above like 1.2 ish. Um, looking at this data would not strictly, uh, you know, uh, reinforce that number. It would say, 1.25 ish might be where you want to get above. If we're going to, you know, assume that this data is, uh, you know, the best possible data that we can pull together to answer this. And I, I think that it is a, a very nice representative data set for that. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here, I think it's important to clarify what I am concluding, but more importantly, what I'm not concluding. So I am not saying that protein is unimportant. Uh, Nothing in this presentation would, or in this segment, would indicate that. I am not saying that protein is unrelated to gains in fat-free mass. It clearly is. Uh, I'm not saying that 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram is an ineffective, optimal protein target. I actually still very much believe that that is a very nice, if you were to ask me with no additional knowledge about the situation... Someone's trying to build muscle how much protein, and if I, if you tell me to scale it by total body mass, I'm going to say 1.6 to 2.2. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that that is a bad target, but what I am concluding is a few very important points. First of all, resistance training drives muscle growth, but the protein we're adding in there is merely permissive, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. There's a lot of folks who worry way too much about their exact protein intake and not enough about, am I doing the things required to stimulate muscle growth? The, the training component is really driving the ship here. Uh, the protein is simply having a permissive effect. So all we're trying to do is get the protein high enough to really let those gains materialize and manifest. Uh, what I am concluding is protein restriction to very low levels is definitely bad for your gains. But clearly at really high levels of protein it becomes a bit redundant. And even the original meta by by Morton would reinforce that point with the flat relationship above 1.6. But the main point I want to make here is that there is a massive, uh, I would say, overestimation of the cost of setting your protein target at 1.4, 1.5 grams per kilogram per day when we compare it to that optimal range of 1.6 to 2.2. There's a, a really pervasive misconception that the low end of that optimal range has been determined with a high level of precision and that there is a very clear uh, downturn in your progress if you fall just a little bit short of that. Yeah. When we look at this data and say, what what if you get 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, the data would indicate that the difference between getting pretty damn sufficient protein intake in that 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 range, the difference between pretty damn sufficient and fully optimal is very, very slim. And the line separating those two categories is actually pretty hard to draw when you just put the data out there and say, where are we seeing the dramatic drop off in gains as protein gets lower and lower and lower? Mm-hmm. So, what I would encourage people to do is be just a little bit less uh, dogmatic about the idea that every human being should have that lifts should have their protein between 1.6 and 2.2. Um, you know, I, if you were to go out into like a message board or a forum, if those still exist, I don't know, you were to go into a subreddit and say hey i just hired a new fitness coach i'm trying to put on some muscle they gave me this diet uh recommendation and the protein targets 1.5 grams per kilogram per day for this example 1.4 mm-hmm. you're going to get about two-thirds of that group who says you got to fire this person right away yeah, they're, they're, they're a fucking fraud they're fully incompetent and the other one-third is going to say they should be in jail yeah uh like the visceral
1: reactions well to- and and you might have uh one angry very radicalized vegan who <laughs> says like no abs abs that's way too high like your your kidneys are fucked
0: yeah and before we get angry messages i actually am vegan now i haven't told you that yet but uh congrats i i have made the, the transition the only exception is that i am still I haven't been eating eggs much because I don't feel like it. Yeah. I'm still very comfortable eating the eggs from my local animal rescue because those chickens live a better life than I do. Mm -hmm. And the reason I went vegan is just for
1: animal welfare concerns. So like those, those chickens are doing just fine. Um, And, and to be clear, that was, that was a comment about a, a particular, I think relatively small subsection of vegans, not. Not vegans generally. Yeah, but but small subsections tend to be very outspoken. Yes, <laughs> and that that's
0: definitely the case. Um, but anyway, yeah, like there has been this um, this widespread uh, adoption of that optimal range without a lot of nuance behind it, um, and and it has led to a lot of mis- misinterpretations, like the example I just described, which of course was hyperbolic, but. I think isn't necessarily unrepresentative, um, and, and so with that in mind, I do want to talk. Uh, I, I want to remind people uh, that if if you're getting your protein like one point three to one point five grams per kilogram per day, and bumping it up to one point six is challenging, it's infeasible, it's inconvenient, or it's simply just unpleasant for you. It, based on the research does not make a lot of sense to totally beat yourself up about that. I think people are 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 really disconnected from the actual magnitude of what they might be theoretically missing out on there. And I think there are a lot of uh, specific scenarios where I would look at someone's diet, look at their lifestyle, look at the sacrifices it would take to get them from 1.3 to 1.6 or 1.8. I would say, honestly... The the juice there is not worth the squeeze. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to be losing sleep over this. And in fact, the sleep we're losing over this is probably more impactful than the protein that we're missing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, I do want to uh, wrap this up with some kind of practical uh, ranges that people can lean on here. And I want to frame them based on total body mass, but also based on fat-free mass, because um one point of, of confusion that comes up a lot from that kind of standard optimal range is you'll find people who maybe their goal is to lose 120 pounds, right? And they're saying, I read on the internet, I need to eat at least 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. But my my protein intake is astronomically high. Yeah. Um, and and the, the fact of the matter is, you know, when we scale by total body mass alone, There are certain ranges of the body composition spectrum where this recommendation starts to really fall flat. Um, And scaling to fat-free mass is not a perfect solution, but it is an upgrade in certain scenarios. Yeah. So the category that I consider pretty damn good for protein intake, the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram per day in in the United States. I think that pretty damn good is 1.2 to 1.6. Uh, That is a protein intake where I might say, you know what, it's possible that we are not fully, fully, fully optimizing your gains, but we are getting the lion's share of gains that are currently accessible to you. Uh, And what gains are accessible to you, that's going to be determined by your genetics, your response to training, and the nuts and bolts of your current training program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, for the fat-free mass equivalent, uh, I would say that that would be roughly one point five to two gram, one point five to two grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Mm-hmm. Now the optimal range, I still agree. I, I I absolutely concur. If you said my goal is to leave no gains on the table, and I I want to leave no doubt, I want to be certain that I am in the optimal range and I'm not under eating my protein. I still think the optimal range going by total body mass is 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day. Uh, And if we scale that to fat-free mass, I'd say that's more in the range of like 2 to 2.75 grams of protein per kilogram of fat-free mass. And one additional note, since you brought up vegans, um, this is actually already in the outline. If you are totally vegan, so no eggs, no dairy, no meat, no fish, all that stuff. Uh, And you're very adamant about supporting fat-free mass accretion or retaining it during a cut. I do think, you know, we've talked about previously uh, on the show, there's research indicating if you're getting 1.6 grams per kilogram per day or above um, uh, uh, per kilogram of total body mass, if you're getting into that standard optimal range, vegan diets versus omnivorous diets seem to have similar effects Mm -hmm. on hypertrophy even as a vegan, I can acknowledge as total protein intake starts getting lower and lower, the differences between a vegan diet and an omniv- omnivorous diet and how they support hypertrophy, the differences become more apparent. Yeah. Uh, and so what that means is it, it's, it's very nice as a vegan to say, whatever, just eat enough protein and you're good, get over 1.6 and you're fine. If you are going to give yourself a little bit of slack and say, I eh, don't need to push to 1.6, I realize based on the literature I'm not necessarily losing that much if I settle a little lower than that. I would still say like either try to get like at least 1.4-ish if you're totally vegan or just be really, really adamant about making sure that you have some really high-ish quality vegan proteins in your diet. So make sure you've got plenty of you know soy-based proteins, mycoprotein-based proteins. Uh, m- maybe you spend a little more time Making sure that you have complementary protein sources, you just want to have a kind of a heightened sense of awareness. If you're on a totally vegan diet and you are falling below that 1.6 threshold, if you're on a, a ovo-lacto vegetarian diet and you're still getting whey and Greek yogurt and eggs and all that stuff, you're essentially you're basically an omnivore when it comes to to protein quality. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, that little caveat there I'd say only applies to pretty strict vegans. All right, so I I think that does it. Uh, Like I said, basically just trying to make one point, and that is I'm not disputing the kind of standard optimal range for protein intake, but I do think people should, uh, when they really hate getting up into that, that higher range of protein intake, it's worth readdressing the question of how much do I lose when I settle at one point four instead of one point six? And the answer, based on the literature, is simply not that
1: much. Absolutely, I, and I think that that's a good, a good, just kind of like generalizable thing to keep in mind. Like if um if someone is saying that something is is good for you and you should do it, and it's going to improve your gains, um, it is worth asking to what extent does this seem to be generalizably true or you know is is it just like eh, one or two studies kind of supporting this thing and uh like what what is the effect magnitude like if if something does seem to be net beneficial but you know it, it doesn't like the actual magnitude of the effect seems to be quite small then it's just a question of of how much is that worth it to you like i, I think this comes up in discussions of supplements pretty frequently like you know the uh like creatine in particular seems to be quite good and then once you go down from there you know there's there's a variety of things that might have a beneficial effect on on strength endurance or any number of like acute training variables um generally the impact isn't all that large and so if if someone approached all of those things with kind of the same mindset that it seems a lot of people approach protein with of damn like I definitely have to get one get to 1.6 grams per kilo or I'm leaving a lot on the table I don't think most people apply that same sort of thought to supplements where it's like well I mean it seems like it seems like citrulline malate has a small effect so like I definitely need to take that before every workout beta-alanine eh, it's hard to say it may have a small effect definitely need to take that before every workout like if if that is the sort of uh uh reasoning process you go through you you, you're gonna wind up being on the hook for doing all sorts of shit that may be beneficial but probably only has a relatively small benefit um so yeah if you don't go down that road for any number of other topics probably not worth going down that road and getting like that obsessive when it comes to protein um and if you do find yourself going down that road on a lot of different topics pretty frequently, I, I would just uh, implore you to take a step back and ask yourself, how much is this actually going to affect me? And is, is the cost worth the anticipated benefit?
0: Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I will say it's one thing I remember when I was younger and, you know, especially with supplements, I intuitively understood that the effects would be small. But I had fun. Yeah. And I wasn't doing anything dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I, I was I wasn't taking any, you know, dubious, you know Well, I you potentially were. The supplement industry back then well, had a pretty big <laughs> issue with uh heavy metal contamination that yeah. we didn't find out about until after the fact. That's true. Um Yeah. But you know, I was I was <laughs> selecting in- you, you, you weren't knowingly doing anything that was risky. I was selecting <laughs>
0: products that, if manufactured correctly, had low risk profiles. Yes. Right? So yes. It was, there was minimal skin in the game. It was, oh, I'm going to have some fun and see if beta alanine does something for me. You know, and the, the cost was not super cheap for a college student, but cheap enough to swing it. You know, so there's two different ways that people approach this. Like, are you sweating over all the small details because you're very worried and concerned Or are you exploring the small details because you're curious and inquisitive and you enjoy that exploration process? I view those as two very, very different things. And so I I try not to stifle people who want to try to mess around with some of the smaller stuff and and kind of say, oh, wow, that was nice. I I think I'm getting something out of it. Um, You know, versus like, yeah, if you are just in a constant state of dread because you think you need to increase your protein intake by point three grams per kilogram per day. You you really got to revisit that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I just want to mention that was a really clear shot across the bow that I did receive and uh, and certainly recognize. Uh, just unnecessarily calling out citrulline malate, which I was the first author of a meta analysis on it and calling out beta alanine i was the first author of the issn position stand on that um so i feel like you there was clearly some jabs happening there and i will acknowledge them but i won't
1: respond to them yeah okay um yeah that's fine
0: (laughs) you can tell that uh i i I was
1: (laughs) i was debating whether i also wanted to to take a small shot at nitrate or uh caffeine versus coffee yeah um what what are what are some other things you've looked at those those are the four that come to
0: mind for me oh man i mean w- we did some uh some like uh special carbohydrate supplementation oh, yeah. like the high molecular weight stuff protein stuff um you know i mean some adaptogens throw those in the mix i mean yeah but you know w- when it comes to those papers like you can kind of tell what got me into research and what i viewed as a fun project <laughs> you know it's just like oh I've been messing around with this stuff for three years. I'd like to research it, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, all right. So I think that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, thanks so much for joining us. And we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.